Welcome back to the original judo podcast, guys. A bit of a change from what I had planned. I was intending to do something around the first few Olympic qualification events, um, the upcoming Commonwealth Games, but having butchered uh, the recording of that on three or four occasions now, I've had a little bit of a, of a shuffle round. So this one, I wasn't intending to bring it out for a few weeks. Um, delighted to be joined by Alan McDonald. Uh, he's a former like international judo player training at Judo Scotland, who then moved on to become an SNC coach. It is pretty clear from early on that I expose my, I guess, lack of insight and understanding of SNC and planning, I guess, um, probably even preparation, the level of preparation I put into this interview. Um, so I apologize for the absolute scattiness of the nature of this, uh, but Al was absolutely brilliant. He handled my string of random questions amazingly. He creates this really coherent thread throughout. Um, I hope it's really interesting and everyone finds it massively informative all the way through. Um, we do talk about his book, Deterministic Judo, um, Engineering High Performance, which is a strength and conditioning like manual, which is aimed at judo coaches, athletes, hoping to uh, get some informed ideas about how to go about strength and conditioning, bringing it into their judo or their athlete's judo. Uh, Please like, subscribe, let your friends know about the episode. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, Al, thanks again, mate, for you know giving me your time. It is massively appreciated. And, well, sorry that I ended up being so unprepared on the day. But it was fantastic to catch up with you. Everybody, enjoy the show. Yes, guys, welcome back to the Original Judo Podcast. I am James Austin, and today we are joined with someone who I used to spend a lot of time on the mat with. And if he wasn't dragging me around, he was definitely responsible for torturing me in many, many respects. I'm delighted to welcome uh, Alan McDonald, former Scottish under 73 kilos, former Scottish and British judo uh, S&C coach, um, Al, how are you doing? First of all, I fought 66s. <laughs> oh, you were definitely 73. And then I went, I wish I could be 73 kilos now. I think I'm maybe about 93, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you were 73s. So, I'll take it back. Look, this is I did, like every single I did actually. Uh, completely yeah, no, I did, I did fight 73s a couple of times. Ah, well, I apologise, Al. What a great start. <laughs> we'll cut that bit out. We're definitely not cutting it out. How are you doing? What's going on? How are you? You've uh, moved away from judo. You spent some time in Scottish rugby. Um, people, yeah. People who don't know you, can you just tell us a little bit about, yeah, your background in the sport and then how you got into S&C? Yeah, of course. So I think, first of all, thanks for having me on. So I Love a good chat, and I'm obviously out of judo now, so it's nice to reconnect with people in judo. Um, yeah, so a bit of my background: I did judo as a kid, um, like a lot lot of people, and then I uh, sort of left the sport when I was maybe thirteen or fourteen for a little period of time. Uh, went away to uni, and I studied engineering and, math and mathematics at university. Did that for a few years, um, and when I was at uni, I started back up judo. And I went to the Edinburgh club with uh, Billy Cusack and David Somerville and uh, kind of I've got on those personalities where you just go, you know, dive headfirst into things and absolutely loved it, loved the lifestyle as probably people listening to this can attest to. And then I actually left my engineering degree and went and switched to physiology. And I, th the main reason for that was I wanted to understand things better for my own training, but I kind of always maybe had this like coaching mindset or characteristic that was always quite like present. I want to like help people get better. Um, and then that kind of led to me picking up some pathway work with some of the younger athletes. I am um, doing a bit of doing training or writing their training for a couple of years. And then 
how I actually got my job with my first SNC job was I was doing the pathway coaching and hey, uh, judo had kind of transitioned from being a club-based program in Scotland to there being a national program at Rathal mm-hmm. and there was sort of this transition period and they'd employed somebody who's really experienced to be in it to be the SNC coach um, but he had applied for two jobs and I think he did the judo Scotland one for two days <laughs> and then he left um, and it wasn't the other job he went to was a good gig as well so you can't really blame him for that so judo Scotland and Sports Scotland who supplied the services were a bit stuck and yeah. because I'd been doing the pathway stuff, um, David Somerville had sort of asked the head person at the institute to give me a give me a bit of a shot because I seemed like it was a bit like I was into it and stuff, and I could follow orders. Probably, <laughs> I wasn't a disruptor at that point. <laughs> um, oh, is that how you see something then, now? Uh, sometimes you need to. Sometimes you need to be like. <laughs> um, but no, I think uh, cohesiveness is probably better than being a disruptor most of the time. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that's how I got into strength and conditioning. So I, I um, worked for Sports Scotland, but um, the way it kind of works is your sports service given to us, given to us sport. So then I worked with with um, judo. I did a couple other sports while I was in um, Sports Scotland. But I was uh, again. This was this was going back to like two thousand seven, two thousand nine. So quite a long time ago. There was like a transitionary period where mm-hmm. you would have athletes going to a gym to do their training. And Judo Scotland are one of the first sports. They could have even been the first sport in Scotland where the athletes were centralised training. So then yeah. the support services, such as myself, would be based with the athletes the whole time. And um, yeah, and that was kind of how I got into strength and conditioning. It, it's a few years ago now, but how did you find that transition like away from the mat and into like the S&C role, yet still within the same sport? Um. I actually think I had some pretty good mentors <clears throat> that kept me kept me right. So I remember having a conversation with David Somerville, who was sort of the head coach of the program or program director, and the head of strength and conditioning, who was called Dave Clark at the time for Sports Scotland. And I can't remember the conversation. It was two different conversations. Sort of, they were like off the back of one another. But essentially, the, it kind of came down to if I wasn't as good as some people in the matter of judo, perhaps I might lose a bit of respect for what I could bring from a strength and conditioning perspective. Mm-hmm. So am I going to be a judo player who does a bit of strength and conditioning, or am I going to try and be a world-class strength and conditioning coach? And not that they're both mutually exclusive, but that was kind of the discussion at the time. So I decided to try and go down the route of, I want to be the best strength and conditioning coach I can be. And so I'm going to step away from, me going on the mat and training the whole time um, and fighting with people uh, or practicing with people and I'm going to go down this route which I think in reflection is I, I think I was guided really well in that because I've seen it from so once I left judo I've worked in international rugby for um, until fairly recently and in rugby you get a lot of ex pros or ex-players transitioning to wanting to be strength and conditioning coaches mm-hmm. but they become this kind of hybrid where they um, know quite a lot about the rugby but they're not quite a rugby coach they know a bit of strength and conditioning but they probably don't have enough expertise in either one to really you know like shift the needle on performance they're they're and that's just that's just my own personal feeling so then you end up needing people that have quite solid expertise in one area to really shift shift on things and um, particularly when it comes to like rehabbing athletes and things so i think i probably was well, on reflection i i feel that i was mentored quite well to go and try and be an expert here than to just be a bit of a jack of all trades how did you like how did you find the buy-in so i've started doing some work in sports psychology more recently and i think you it's perhaps a little bit easier to get buy-in from athletes within the sport um i just wonder though because you've been with us as a player like so recently did you find at the time or were you conscious at the time that everyone was buying in straight away was there a little bit of hesitancy um it's so long ago Um, that you can't remember (laughs) no do you you know what i i think like it was actually it's coming back like 
15 years now. <laughs> I think I probably didn't have the awareness at the time. If I'm, if I'm brutally honest, I, I don't think I would have had awareness of buying because I was dead, dead new in it. But I imagine some conversations probably got, probably happened where I wasn't present, where the coaches, so Billy and David probably spoke to a few of the senior athletes, people like yourself, people like you and Burton, people like Sarah Clark, um, who were the sort of senior cohort of players at the time. And I would imagine there was probably a conversation of if you guys show respect to Alan, the younger athletes will have to follow. Yeah. Um, so then, because they then res showed respect and demonstrated respect towards me, it made my job much easier than it probably probably could have been. It could, probably could have been quite challenging. So I think that was maybe one contributing factor. And I would say the other contributing factor was as well, at that time, although I'd been given the role, I still had quite a lot of support put around me. So um, Sports Scotland supported me through... I went and did a mentorship with British Cycling. There was yeah. the head of physiology there at the time, uh, a guy called Scott Gardner. I went and did like an 18-month mentorship with him where I would take performance problems I was having, would go down cycling for two or three days at a time. I would problem solve them with him. He would mentor me through them. And then I would take, the, take them back. So I had that mentor relationship there. And I also had Stuart Ewell, who, for people who don't know, Stuart worked in uh, judo from well when it was when the institute really start got set up he worked yeah. with scottish judo and then he then he went to the english institute of sport and worked with british judo across the beijing cycle and then he went off and did um rugby professional rugby and whatnot but i would have to send all of my programs to stuart as like an external and he would give me feedback on them and challenge me in different things so although i didn't have the experience. I was probably set up in some really good processes there to make sure that I was I, I couldn't couldn't go too far wrong. Oh no, I love that. And then I guess did you were you conscious of it then when you move out of judo and you move yeah. into rugby again? Do you do you find that you become a, a lone voice uh, shouting into a storm? Or again, were, were people quite happy to like uh, jump on board and? Uh, yeah, like buying yeah, I'd Australia. say, I'd say actually probably a step before that was when I moved from Scottish judo to British judo. There was a completely different relationship there. Um, I think the expectation as to what a strength and conditioning coach's job was. A lot of the staff there hadn't worked with a strength and conditioning coach before, or this or a strength and conditioning coach they worked before did things in a particular way that was quite different from the way probably would maximize the output of a strength or maximize the skill set of a strength and conditioning coach. So like when I worked at British Judo, a lot of the time the coaches wanted to design a lot of the things that was probably my area of expertise. Um, so then that was where there was probably more challenge was that, okay, where am I adding value here? Because the coaches wanting to design the training sessions. Like I remember before, I think it was actually the first year I worked there, the performance director designed a running session before a world championships, yeah. which I just, it was, it was, it was a challenging situation because you sort of try to look holistically at everything and where, what are the rate limits of performance for these athletes? And then you've got this kind of melting pot. Well, this coach is designing this session and this coach is designing this session. And it's really difficult to manage. Um, so yeah, at, at the time I probably didn't have the skills to um, navigate that situation as effectively as I, as, I, as I probably could do now. But when I went to rugby, interestingly, I got a lot of buy-in really quickly. Um, I thought I'd actually spent a lot of time thinking about how do I build rapport with people? So I've, I've perhaps not been as effective in a previous role. What have I taken for granted and what do I need to do better now? So mm -hmm. when I worked at Judo Scotland, the people who employed me for the most part I had relationships with because they were my coaches yeah. and I had relationships with the athletes because I had been their teammates yeah. I then went somewhere where people didn't have those relationships with and building them was challenging so then I did spend a lot of time before I went to rugby thinking how do I build rapport with different people what are going to be my strategies for that and actually I got buy-in really quickly in rugby ah okay no I love that um kind of kind of on the the similar topic 
and you you might be wanting to compare across sports. I often think that judo, like maybe martial arts in in particular, uh, there's a belief across athletes, certainly to a certain level, and and maybe across the coaches as well, that there is always a like a magic bullet. Um, if I just do this one thing, <laughs> um, this will be uh, yeah. like the answer. Um, do you find that becomes a hindrance to buying into like the S and C side or do athletes then take the opposite thing and go, ah, oh, this is the one thing I'm a hundred percent into the maybe detriment of the, 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 the other training. Um, I'd, I'd say it's quite widespread, but I certainly say I've worked with people that, that think like that. And I think we can fool ourselves sometimes. So like, a broken clock is right twice a day, isn't it? <laughs> so you you can do everything wrong and still get a good outcome. So here here's a here's a here's a um so we spoke before I'm I'm doing a, a bit of work on decision making for some studies that I'm doing. And um one of the questions I ask coaches when I'm discussing things with them is how do you evaluate if you've made a good decision or not? And most of the time the response to that is well, if I get a good outcome, then it was a good decision. And if I get a bad outcome, then it was a bad decision. So the they're they're assessing the effectiveness of their decision or what they've chosen to do based on the outcome. Um, which most of the literature on or on this which was probably not the best way of evaluating if your decision is is good or not. And um, so a simple example to try to demonstrate this, and I hope it doesn't get get lost over like a podcast, but is I live in I live in Scotland and uh just for argument's sake, let's say it rains nine days out of 10. <laughs> so just on average, it rains nine days out of 10. So 90% of the, the days that there's rain. If I choose to go outside and I choose not to take a jacket with me, so I'm not taking a jacket, and I go out and it doesn't rain, do you think that's a good decision, Austin? <laughs> I mean, having lived in Scotland, definitely not. <laughs> so just so if you go out and it doesn't rain, that doesn't make a good decision. Because if you repeat that scenario 100 times, 90 of the times you're going to get wet. But it just so happened that you were probably fortunate rather than it being highly skilled. And I think this is the thing that sort of getting back to that magic bullet is that we can quite easily fool ourselves and use, or you're, you're a psychologist, use a concept called motivated reasoning, which is why you try to fit what the outcome was. You try to backtrack your narrative to, to find reasons why it worked. Yeah. And then we build this false sort of storyline as to, oh, if I repeat this multiple times and I do this with other people, I'll be successful. But actually, it's you, 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 it's been flawed. So I think there is definitely this like magic, magic bullet and, um, but we're all, we've all got our own biases and errors in the way that we think. Yeah. Um, yeah. So pe people who, who listen uh, to this, I say people, person who listens to this regularly will know that I jump back and forth in my interviewing. So I, uh, I apologize. I want to keep it simple because you have to remember you're speaking yeah. to an idiot. Um, your profession's S&C. Um, yeah. What is it? What, what did you know players need? Like, why is that relevant to the sport of judo? Um, I think lots. I think lots of reasons. Um, and you can probably look at this from loads of different loads of different angles. Um, so, to one of the angles that you probably want to look at it from is um, how much uh, the concept of like rate limiters in sport or. Um, central governor theory so i've spoken about this quite a lot so anybody that's maybe listened or read anything i've written before is this concept of central governor theory and it's not a hundred percent right there's flaws with the theory okay so we need to put it out there but just because there's flaws with a bit of something doesn't mean the whole thing's wrong and it's probably in the right direction so what central governor theory speaks about is your brain is what controls your output how hard you can work or how strong you are. It's your brain that does this. And the reason we think this, or some of the evidence that suggests that your brain is what's in control, is that when people run a marathon, 
quite often they look exhausted and then they can sprint at the end. But if they were running as fast as they could, then they wouldn't be able to sprint at the end. So there's sort of one sort of example. There's some other really well-controlled studies done in the heat where you have cyclists and you have previously had them do like a time trial, let's say 5K or 40K, something like that. And then they have them set off and try to cycle um, at that pace at different temperatures. And what you'll find is within, and I think there's one where they have people do it at 20 degrees and 40 degrees. And what they find in the first 10 to 15 seconds of like an hour long trial. So this is the first, the very first bit, like their legs have barely started. Oh, there's a car outside. There's um, before their legs have even started turning, their brain has recognized, oh, it's really hot here. If I cycle at that work rate, what they're trying to do to me for an hour, I'm going to fail cat catastrophically. And what that means is you, you die. Yeah. So your brain doesn't want you to die. So your brain will regulate and it will slow you down because it knows what your it knows what the task is you have in front of you. So then we drill down a little bit deeper and we go, well, my brain's making that decision. I'm not in control of it. What does my brain use to make that decision? It uses feedback from your whole body, everything. Like your body is a feedback mechanism. And one of the things that gives feedback is your uh, like muscles. So if your muscle system and I'll just use these fairly general terms, it can produce, it's stronger. If it's stronger or faster, or it can switch on quicker, or or you, you improve how, how strong it is, then that gives feedback to your brain to go, oh, we can work even harder because we've got loads in reserve. So if, if you improve the strength of a muscle from 100 kilograms of output to 150, then if I'm asked to work at 90, before that, I only had 10 kilograms in reserve. Now I've got 60 kilograms in reserve. Mm -hmm. So my brain can go off, work even harder. This is really easy. You've got so much extra capacity. So that's one of the reasons that, and it's, and it's important, this is things that people can get lost down the rabbit hole of this, is that if I then subscribe to that theory, or mostly that theory, that it's my brain that regulates my output, then my job is to improve the capabilities of my muscle. Do I then need the exercise to look like a judo exercise? Okay. I no, mean, I don't. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't because ultimately then I want to find the best way to improve the capability of that muscle because, or the capability of whatever it is that I'm looking at training that my heart or my lungs or organs or or anything i want to find the best way of improving the capability of that because then i don't then it won't be a limiter my brain will recognize oh i've got loads of heart capacity left oh i don't need to slow myself down but if i try to make everything look like judo i try to do everything through judo you judo you can only push yourself so hard in judo by nature of it you can't push yourself harder in judo than you can push yourself harder in judo mm -hmm. You just can't, you can't do it because that's what limits you. So you have to find ways of going off. What would allow me to push something to a higher level than what judo can give me? And then that'll change the relationship of how my brain regulates effort. It's, it's, it's really interesting stuff. You, yeah, I, I mean, going back, I guess, to one of the more simple points, talking about what the, the, the limiting factors are that you, you made yeah. throughout that. I think uh, having coached at a university club where you get such a variety of individuals come through the door and um, yes. really become aware of what those limiting, certainly the physical, people's physical capacity, you become aware of like how that becomes a limiting yeah. factor. You can see a kid come through the door who might have a previous experience to a high level in another sport or gymnastics or, you know, something where they really understand what they're, body can do and they have the capacity to do a lot opposed yeah. to people who may have come from a judo background but might not have the yeah physical strength capacity whatever you want to call it to deliver a, a, a nuchi mata stood on one leg against somebody of their own weight yeah and I, yeah i think 
it wasn't it wasn't something I was aware of. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, I just thought prior to coaching, it wasn't something I, w- I was aware of. I was like in a really closed environment, you know, within judo Scotland, within British judo, where everybody's yeah. everybody's got these abilities. Um, I yeah. guess the question on the end of this is, um, how, is there a question? Probably is a question. Definitely a question. Um, how do you find the balance? Because again, I suppose, sure. if, I suppose if you're, I suppose, I was going to say, I suppose if, I suppose if you're somebody listening and you're not currently an elite athlete who's getting things provided for you and you're thinking, oh, how can I improve? How can I improve my performance? What can I, what can I do? The, the point you made there is really, really useful is that if you look at just the elite athletes, they've probably all got similar characteristics, strength, fitness, power, that they're within this bandwidth. Within that bandwidth, there's probably quite a bit of variation. But then if you compare them to the rest of the population, yeah, they're all elite in a lot of things. So then when you look at, you are looking for like smaller improvements things, but for the other group who are aspiring to get into that, you can get, very very far doing the basics of things um to such a high standard so i think of things like um being able to jump and land although you don't do that in judo because you're moving your own body weight through space it causes your muscles to fire really quick mm-hmm. so i think being able to jump and let's not make this massively complicated being able to do box jumps or broad jumps where you jump forward do one-legged jumps all of, all of those things are great and um, you don't really need to overcomplicate it. Squatting is such a good exercise. It obviously looks at your range of movement through your ankle, your knee, and your hip, through your trunk, but obviously gives you a huge amount of strength. And then simple things like being able to push and pull your upper body. So push-ups, pull-ups, bench, presses, lots of different variations, particularly if you're still a developing athlete. These things are all great, and they they're one component of a larger amount of things that you should be doing, but they are that component that it allows you to remove the rate limiter or the thing that's limiting your body being able to do more judo. Because if you've got more capacity in your legs or your trunk or you've got more mobility, then that means that you can do more judo and it'll cost you less because you've improved your budget. And that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to improve your budget so that you can do more judo. And if you're seeing, once you improve your capacity there, there's still the element of, you now need to learn to use that. And I've used this analogy loads of times, but I think it's still really relevant is that if you're a, if you're a racing car team and you want to win the race, which is obviously what the outcome is, if all you do is the engineers get a faster car and build a bigger engine, a better set of brakes, that's all strength and conditioning is really doing. It's upgrading the hardware. So the, mm-hmm. the driver has the potential to go faster. But the first time they go back in the car, they probably won't go faster. In fact, they might crash because they've not got the skill or the coordination to use this new horsepower. So you still need to practice. I think you've and that's me where I see this in the most simple terms. Oh, I'll stop then. <laughs> no, no, I, think I was going to say, like, I could easily imagine at lower levels, you can see how that physical capacity transfers or simply getting in a gym, like transfers onto a judo mat, yeah. like really quickly. How do you know, how did you know when you were coaching, when you were starting out, how do you know now or, or whenever you're working in, in SNC, how do you know that what you're doing is transferring, like potentially with those elite athletes who have maybe this, uh, those minimum performance standards, you know, they're all within that bracket. How do you know it's transferring to help them improve performance? That's a really good question. Probably one of the most most challenging um, challenging questions to be able to, now it's good though, it's a, it's a good question to be able to demonstrate. I think it depends on what people think of as transfer mm-hmm. and uh, sometimes thinking it's a red herring thing that you, if you achieve this transfer, then then it's like it is the, the magic bullet that solves all the problems. So here are some ways I think about transferring or or I would think. And I, I used a lot of this in, in, in rugby when I worked in rugby was that the most important thing is or quality you can have is availability, availability to do your sport, meaning that you're not injured or that you're 
training isn't significantly hampered, so you can do most of the training. <clears throat> and we know that if we can improve people's physical capacities, their budget for training is higher. Mm -hmm. So if I get people stronger and fitter and they have better aerobic system and whatnot, they can do more of their sport. And we know that the thing that transfers the most is doing your sport. So that, I would say, is the first level of transfer. If I do this type of strength and conditioning, or I do strength and conditioning, then I can do, I've got a bigger budget, so I can practice my sport more. And if I practice my sport more, then I can get better. So I'd say that's one level of transfer. i say if we get a bit more sort of granular in how we think about it, the thing that really transfers the most is the amount of time you spend training at or above your competition level of intensity. So if we were to look, because that's the that's the highest intensity output, that's the thing where you're in the most similar fatigue state from a decision-making point of view, from a physical point of view, the speed of movement, the fatigue of movement, and all these other things. So then when I talk about transfer, if I can give my body more capabilities to work at a higher output, then I can actually spend more time in my sport working at a higher output. And this, I know it's it's not specific to judo, but it was very measurable. And in, in when I worked in rugby was, we would have the athletes wear GPS units, which would give us a million different types of metrics as to what the athletes were, were doing. But one of the things we would look at would be um, the number of times the athlete would accelerate in a minute, mm -hmm. the number of times they would tackle somebody in a minute, the number of times they'd slow down or have to change direction, and the total distance they would run in a minute. So what I would have is, I would have, this is what a match looks like from their position when they play a match. Let's say they cover 60 meters in a minute is what they're covering. So then when we would do training, we would try to make sure that our training was at 70 or 80 minute, meters a minute. Okay. And then a, a key thing for us for looking at transfer would be how much time each week can we spend above the match intensity? Because then we know when they go back into the match, they've got so much extra in reserve. A match just seems really slow paced. They can make really great decisions. They're not going to get injured. But you can't do that if you don't, first of all, improve the size of the engine. And, that, and that's the reality of it. So I say that's one thing of transfer. The other thing that you can do, um, which judo typically doesn't do this, and I'd say it's more because of the money available in it, but people could do this, is, is looking at, for example, force production in specific positions. So when I worked in rugby, we had um, a force plate, which is basically a really fancy set of bathroom scales. So when you would stand on it, it would show how much force was going to the ground and it would show loads of things like how quickly you produce that force and a bunch of other things. But what you can do is you can put those force plates in different positions where you're in like a sports situation. So I know that in swimming, they do it where they put people in the position where they're perhaps at the right, the far reach of where they're going to produce force in their front stroke and they can have people push down because then that's going to look at, oh, how strong are you in the position you need to be to propel yourself through the water? Mm -hmm. So you can do some position-specific strength strength tests. Um, so we did some of that in scrummaging positions in rugby to look at, as an isolated person, if we put the force pit on the ground, how strong can we get the people to push and to shove? Um, and obviously, if they're getting better at the squats and the deadlift, and we weren't seeing an improvement in the scrum strength, that then that then gives us information to go, we need to practice the skill of scrummaging more. And I'd say that's maybe the transfer bit that sometimes in judo we don't get that you'll see somebody that squats 200 kilo, but they're not as strong as somebody that squats 60 kilo. And it's just because they're not able to transfer that capacity, they can't drive with it. That's essentially it. They haven't spent the time learning to drive with it, so they need to do some work around that. How did you... How did you find when you were working again, jumping back and forth, when you were working? Um, how did you find the balance of uh, athletes spending time in the gym and doing stuff on the mat so that the stuff they're doing in the gym is not negatively impacting the stuff that they're doing on the mat? Um, again, I could easily imagine, like, I really enjoyed spending time in the gym. 
I was also aware that I walked around a lot, constantly racked with uh, doms. And I'm not always sure that led to the best randori, like the mat time practice. But at the same time, I realised that uh, the training had been like periodised to some effect um, to try and help me peak at certain times through the year. But how do you manage that? Yeah, so that it's for those guys who love the gym, for those guys who want to be in it all yeah. the time, how do you manage that for them? Yeah, that's that's yeah, that's a good question. I suppose there's not one right answer. There's probably lots of right answers, but I think you can if we look at it in terms of the different time scales you can you could plan your training on. So if we were to look on the um on a big time scale, let's say a year training, mm -hmm. there might be times where you do more gym work and less judo because if you do too much judo it'll affect your gym work and then if you do too much gym work it's going to affect your judo so probably a fairly reasonable decision would be to go let's do more judo when we come up to competition and then we could do a bit less judo further out from competition so we can do more gym work that's like a fairly reasonable thing that's making the assumption that the person is significantly being limited by their they're like physical things because at some point when you get really elite you probably don't need a massive the differences aren't physical there are other there are other things you're all in that bandwidth so actually spending six months of the year to do not very much you don't do a lot of snc work is probably not a very good decision um so i would say that you can think like that if you're a developing athlete and you've got these physical limitations well they're the limitations you need to use the best training to improve them and if you do too much judo at that time, you're not that's going to hamper the changes you're going to make in your body. So you probably want to do a bit less judo and a bit more gym work. If we pull it down to like a training week, which I think that's like monthly, we pull it down to like a training week, we go, well, we know from fancy science stuff that you have different um, switches in your body. And when this switch is on, this one has to be off because they can't both be on at the same time. So I can either get bigger and stronger or I can get aerobically fitter but I can't they can't both be on at the same time so then I've got to look at how do I structure the training within the week can I do gym on day one and and judo on day two or would it be better putting them other way around so separating them out for which is the sequence that works best for me or even within that can I put the most tiring exercises at the end of the week mm -hmm. and maybe put the highest power speed exercises at the start of the week when I'm fresh or maybe my jumps and my medicine ball throws and my power cleans and things on a Monday. And then my heavy, slow things like my back squat, and my bench presses and pull-ups on a Friday because I can still get stronger when I'm tired, mm -hmm. but I can't get more explosive when I'm tired. So you maybe want to think about that within the week. And then you can come down to the day and we come down to like single blocks of training and we go, if we want to get more explosive and we were to try and do that after a judo session, well, we know we're already fatigued. So we're probably not going to be able to get more explosive there. We might be able to maintain what we've got, but we're probably not going to be able to get more explosive. So then in a training day, could I go, I'm going to do explosive stuff work first, and then I'm going to do judo second, or I'm going to do my technical training first when I'm fresh, and then I'll do my randori second when I'm fatigued. And I would say those should be the questions you should be trying to, the way you should be trying to think about it so that you can improve everything at the same time. Does judo present any like specific challenges in terms of it's like an annual calendar? Like there's for for the vast majority of people, I'd, I'd imagine there's never a break. I'd like to think at the performance level they um, factor that in and program in times where you go lot lower load or certainly a lot lower competition load for to, you're not trying to peak all through the year. Yeah. But is that is yeah. that one of the challenges you faced when you were with Scottish Judo or British Judo? Oh, massively. I'd say I'd say so many things have evolved really quickly in sport and um we don't necessarily have the tools to fix them. So one of those is the competition calendar. So periodization, you sort of mentioned it a couple of times there, and I kinda of, kinda of laugh because my doctorate supervisor is the guy that's kind of torn a lot of it apart. Right. Um and yeah, yeah. So um, if you want to read any of his work on periodization, his name is John Kiley, and he's got some really interesting stuff um, around it. And 
I think the idea of peaking is quite interesting. You're you're essentially making a prediction. Um, do we ever agree what the criteria of to peak? Here's the things we want to see that we can evaluate occurring. And do you actually ever really evaluate those things? Um, because otherwise you don't know if you peaked or not. And if you just did stuff and you think they got better, but you didn't really. So then at the Surely... whole point of you peak. I was going to say though, surely though, the point of peaking is you're doing it competitively. So you're looking at a performance outcome. So isn't, doesn't that become the measurement? The, or, or certainly so, become the, the measurement that the athlete is looking for as opposed to maybe, do you know what I mean? Something subjective like performance result as opposed to something objective like being five kilos stronger. Oh yeah, no, so that, those are the things I'm talking about. But what we've got to bear in mind is that when you're competing, other people can get things wrong as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then you do need probably some sort of blend. Or so let's say, for example, you're Usain Bolt and you usually run the hundred meters in nine point nine, and you end up running it in ten point two. That's dreadful peaking, isn't it, for you? Mm-hmm. But if everybody else fell over at the start, then yeah. you still have won gold. That doesn't necessarily mean that your training process and your peaking worked. It just means that everybody else did an even worse job. Yeah. Fair. Um, That's a fair point. Yeah, so I think you do you do need to sort of have some way of evaluating, okay, I'm choosing to use a, a structured way of training, a periodized plan, and the reason I'm doing this is because I predict that this will be the outcome of me doing that. I'll improve all of these things at this specific time and date. That's what you're trying to do, but we're not very good at then actually evaluating that. We do the whole thing where we go outside and it didn't rain, so I obviously made a good decision but we know it's a bit more complex than that. Mm-hmm. Um, but to go back to the point on what specific challenges did you, you know, it's one of the most challenging sports you can work with because <laughs> it requires almost every physical thing you can think of. You've got to be strong, explosive, um, have great aerobic fitness to recover between exchanges, between contests. Um, it's got to have really high anaerobic capacities or explosive repeated explosive efforts capacities which a lot of those things are kind of at opposite ends of like a continuum you've got to be as explosive as a sprinter but have the endurance of like a 5k runner so you're trying to manage all these potentially conflicting and contradictory um fitness qualities at the same time as having a huge amount of skill in a sport that's like got You've got to have great control, stability, and these things. And you're trying to marry them all together. Within that, another like dimension of what makes it complex is that it's not an absolute outcome like a time or a weight lifted. It's on where well, you can win in 10 seconds, in two minutes, in five minutes, or in 20 minutes if it goes to goal to score. And the way different people try to fight you have people try to grind you down and win over the five minutes and you have other people that try to bang you in 10 seconds so there's so many different tactics within the sport so then you it's incredibly complex i'd say that is one of the biggest challenges is that you've and you need to formulate your your philosophy on this really clearly which is my strengths are going to be the things that are going to allow me to win Mm -hmm. If I get my weaknesses as good as I can, they still will not allow me to win. So I need to figure out how I give appropriate distribution of training time to those two different things. So to go back to the simple Usain Bolt example, his biggest super strength was his maximum velocity. He could run faster than anybody else. So then you're looking at running a distance over time. Speed is the, is the most important thing. But his start was his weakness because he was so tall, it took him time to get a straight length up. If he put so much work into his start, trying to be trying to be amazing, his super strength of his maximum velocity would start coming down. And actually the thing that allows him to beat everybody, he's now lost. So now he's just kind of a bit of a jack of all trades. So the, the tactic in that situation would be, let's keep his maximum velocity and keep pushing that as good as we can and make sure his weakness, which is a start, is just good enough that he doesn't cause him to lose. Mm-hmm. So then I think when we bring that and relate it back to the context of judo, you've got to figure out what your one or two things are that are like 
your your um, USP, your unique selling factor, or your your thing that separates you from the crowd, the thing that perhaps causes you to get B, and just try and get that to a goodness level, but keep keep pushing this on as much as you can. Um, and I think that's a. I remember being involved in a conversation uh, a few years ago where we profiled athletes and we profiled them on loads of different things, some of which we made the assumption or the assumption was made they all had equal merit in terms of performance, which it's a bit more complicated than that. But the decision was made by certain, by some people that if you're a five in these things and a one in these things, we can do with these coming down to a four and pushing those up to a two. Mm -hmm. That is not performance sport and that's not how to win at something. So my, my recommendation for people at home who are listening is to go, what is the, what is my super strength going to be? What's the thing that's going to, my X factor is going to set me apart. How do I keep pushing that? So it's so far above anything else that anybody else can get. It's going to cause me to win. Find what my weakness is, get it just good enough. And then it's going to stop me getting beaten. And sport is a game of probabilities. You will not win hundred percent of the time. So you're trying to stack things in your favor but recognizing that sometimes you'll do everything right and you still won't get the result that you want, but you've persuaded or you've um, you've influenced things to be the way that to get the outcome that you kind of wanted. So it's such an important point that you're just going on probabilities. If I do these things, I'm probably I'm more likely to win, but I might not. So that's the way I kind of try and think about it. Is there a, uh, I don't know, I think... I'm not, I'm not sure if there's a trap in that or if it's maybe just the, perhaps the culture of judo coming all the way back around to this kind of magic bullet. When things go wrong, people throw away the whole kind of systematic approach and go, I have to work on this and really shift the balance of, uh, have to work on my 100% on my weaknesses or and shift away from that kind of, yeah what is my super strength? I really like the explanation that you've just given, but I think in judo, certainly at below the elite level, there's awful, an awful lot of time spent on getting generally good or, oh, he's not very got good Uchimata. We'll have to get him a good Uchimata um, without really understanding what that would add to that person's judo. Oh, to totally. Like if I, if I go back and just use an example from, from rugby, because it's fairly relevant to what, um, to where I've just 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 been working, and we looked at the probabilities of doing different things on the pitch and where the biggest risk reward was. Um, and previously there had been a philosophy around if we pass the ball more, we when we've got the ball, if we pass the ball more than any other team, the defence will get tired, holes will appear, and we'll run through and score. When you look at the data, that didn't really happen actually we would pass it usually about four times and then drop the ball but it was also true for the other teams the other teams would pass the ball about four or five times and drop the ball as well so we looked at a lot of different probabilities of things and one of the things that we identified was that if we can get really good at kicking we can cover a huge amount of distance um that we don't then need to risk the ball going through hands all the time and then on the back end of that if we can get people that are very good at defending where we're not going to get penalized for the way we defend, but we just force them to make a mistake, we can then get a knock-on in their half and then we can kick for a line-out, which is the highest probability scoring system in women's rugby, their line-out plays. So then you, you just develop your tactics around what the highest probability ways of winning are, which were it's easier to kick for touch if you're in someone else's half. How do you get into someone else's half? You kick it in there and then you just defend in a way that's going to allow you to increase the probability they're going to drop the ball. Now, there's tons of things the team can't do. There's tons of things we never even did in training. If you were to like look at all the list of skills that rugby players have, you'd go, Jacqueline, you're rubbish at Jacqueline. Yeah, because that's not the way the defensive system is set up. Because if you do that, you might give away the pitch. So we don't need to do that the way we're going to defend. And the same situation occurs in, in judo. You don't need to be able to do everything you need to be able to do a lot of things to a baseline level but then you need to do a couple of things to an absolute world-class level and you can 
I would encourage people to try to find world-class people that contradict what I'm saying. You'll be able to find them, but you won't be able to find many of them. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, no, I love, I do love that. Um, I wanted to come back to your own career, first of all, like as a, as a, as a practitioner, um, you were with, worked with athletes through a couple of Olympic cycles. Um, I yeah. wanted to ask you first off front, you left uh, Judo Scotland to move to British Judo right at the start of 2014 or the end of 2013. Do you... Yeah, yeah. Do you have any regrets about not being a part of that Commonwealth Games cycle and, and seeing it through? Or is that, was it again, it was just, it was at the time you had this great opportunity and you moved on? Um, no, do you know what? I don't, um, yeah, I don't, no, I don't really re regret anything, I don't think, with, with that. Um, I suppose... I still had a really good relationship with the athletes from Judo Scotland who went to compete in. You know, I'd like to think that um, they recognised that I'd like done some good work that shifted shifted them forward and that and like again you've got to recognise how we always overemphasise or over exaggerate how much of an impact we've really had. Whereas an athlete does most of it themselves. Let's be really brutally honest on that. Like they can be guided and mentored in a certain direction, but ultimately they're doing it. They're doing it yourself. So um, no, I think it was just good to go and get see them perform and uh, like a uh, like a home games, and I didn't feel like I missed out on any sort of, any sort of part of that at all. Um, I suppose I don't need to be there to see like the winning and stuff. That's not the bit of it that I need. Like it's a cool thing to be a part of. But as a strength and conditioning coach, you're like the support service. So and if, if you if you do, I, at least I have that sort of philosophy that. I can impact performance to a certain level, but if they win, it comes down to them. And probably if they lose, it comes down to them. There is a bit of asymmetry there where an SNC coach can totally, as you said, ruin somebody. It doesn't take very much to, to, to break somebody or to ruin something. But I think for the most part, people are doing it themselves. So then I don't really feel like I'm missing out on a huge, a huge amount. Um, I've actually done a similar thing in my career at the moment. I helped Scotland women qualify for the first World Cup in 12 years in three World Cups. And uh, I won't actually go and see it because I've left. Um, but that'll be great to watch them on TV and all those. And they're actually saying that they qualified for their first Commonwealth Games ever as well. So they'll be competing um, in Birmingham at the Commonwealth Games, but uh, like I won't be their part of the team to do it. But no, nah, I think it's, I don't really, that's not something I need, I don't think. Do you still enjoy the sports that you're working in? whilst you're working them because obviously you came from judo you you must have to some degree have loved judo like prior to getting into snc i imagine you developed an understanding of rugby you're scottish you must love rugby of course um <laughs> like do you still find that you have the space to enjoy those sports when you're working in them uh i'd say for me personally there's probably like a declining curve where you start enjoying them a lot less yeah um because you're, well, for, for me, there's more challenges that keep coming up. You probably build up like frustrations with, with things. Um, and then like part of what, like I, like I think this really strongly and I, I don't know if it's used as a good enough or as a tool used well enough. Fresh ideas and diversity in teams are really important. The research on like high performing teams is very clear. You want like diverse, people from different backgrounds who look at things from different lenses. So there's perhaps some people see it as a negative that staff and sport are quite cyclical and they'll maybe be in for two or three years and then they're out the door and whether they get sacked or whether they choose to move on, this happens a lot of the time. As like with Scottish rugby, I've chosen to leave bang on the three-year mark. My decision to do that is partly because I understand how high-performing teams function. And if you just keep the same staff in there the whole time, the team at some point is going to start plateauing, then it'll decay. So if you really care about the sport and you really enjoy it, probably part of your duty is then to recognise when you maybe have been there that you're not bringing enough diversity anymore and finding finding a way to change that. And one of the ways you can change that is what's in your control is to move on and get somebody else in to do it. So um, and I think that's ultimately probably what a lot of good programmes build in. They offer people three-year, four-year contracts. So when that comes to an end, 
they move on. And if that's not built in, because I really do believe that, I think you probably need to choose to move on. Okay. Oh, I love that. And then um, probably like one of the things I should have started with is uh, you were like my first S&C coach. Um, and I think, yeah, apart from that last year of my How career. How lucky you were. <laughs> <laughs> that last year of my career, um, you know, where obviously Greg took over in Scotland, um, you were 100% responsible for um, the size of my biceps. Why haven't I got bigger guns, Al? What, what went wrong? Uh, I don't know. Effort. I think effort. <laughs> not, try, not trying hard enough. <laughs> Oh no! Um, you've obviously got a book out, Deterministic Judo, um, an ebook, yeah. um, Deterministic Judo, Engineering High Performance. What were you hoping to create with the book? What are you hoping to do with the book? Who's going to read it? Who Who would you like to read it? Yeah, um, I suppose one of the things that the reason I chose to, and we spoke just before the podcast on this, is that I sometimes feel in. in in some sports you have people that build up a huge amount of experience and elements of expertise within that and then they move on and then that knowledge is kind of lost and then uh which is bad for the sport because for example whether it's judo scotland or british judo whatever there's been a significant amount of investment in time and money on somebody like me so then for me to just leave and take all of that knowledge and it's great for me because i can then use it to change rules and whatnot. It's a very fair in the sport. So I'd say probably the first thing was that actually I'd quite like a permanent resource that's just there that people can access to go, oh, I've got an interest in this topic. I want to see what this guy who'd worked in judo for a long period of time thinks about it. And not that I'm right and everything in the book is right. And I'd, I'd, if, people, if people read it and just agree with everything, that's, not, that's definitely not the purpose of it, is to try to show people one type of thought process for a complex sport like judo and that's where the deterministic part comes in i think i said at the beginning like my background is engineering and within engineering you have two different types of systems you have a complicated system and you have a complex system and a complicated system is an engineering type system like a car or a laptop or something where you can subdivide the component parts and then understand their function so if it's not working or you want to improve the performance you can determine which element of the system you need to improve so in the car example you need to go faster what is the determining component of car speed one of them would be the engine size complex system oh it's a very different type of system and that the system that's a system where you can put the same input into it multiple times and you'll get a different output. Mm-hmm. So like um, the human body is a great example of that, that you give one person treatment A, different person treatment A, and they both get different reactions to it. Or we both expose people to sunlight and we get a different rate of reaction. So it's a complex system. Things emerge in it because of loads of different stuff and it's very difficult to predict. So one of the things then when you deal with complex systems like the human body in a sport like judo where there's a hundred thousand different ways to win there's a hundred thousand different needs of what people of of um of what the athlete needs you can just get almost like chasing zombies the whole time you don't know what direction to go and you just get paralyzed by thought what i try to do is show an engineering type approach where you can take all that challenging complexity and distill it into something that's relatively deterministic so for example i see all these different gym exercises on instagram on youtube this coach says this this coach says this how do i solve that problem and the way an engineer would solve that problem is using a principle this is using first principles Mm -hmm. where you dissect things down into their known truths so in this point if you dissect judo all the way down it comes down to Newton's laws of um, of force, uh, mass, and acceleration. That if I want to accelerate somebody through the air, they are the mass. I need to produce force. Therefore, force is a limiting factor. What is the best tool I've got to improve force? Oh, well, squat is a pretty good tool. Bench press is a good tool. 
what about this weird band thing that I saw this guy on YouTube doing? Oh, well, if I use the band and I stand on that wobbly ball, it makes me less stable. So my force would actually go down and then I wouldn't be able to accelerate somebody as well. So it's trying to, the book is there to try to give people an engineering type approach to something that's really complex. And I just wanted it for anybody that does judo, whether you're an athlete, a coach, a high performance coach, if you go, oh, I want to understand about mobility for judo because I've got this player that's a bit, that's a bit stiffer or I think is that there's an issue there. They can just read that chapter and they'll understand what limits mobility or flexibility. They'll understand the difference between mobility and flexibility. And then they'll go down and sort of try to educate them on what the limits of those things would be and then what simple pragmatic tools they can use in a judo type context to get to get performance benefits. So that's kind of what I tried to do with it. And I, no. I expect at some point when I learn more, I'll go back and change bits of it. Definitely. I mean, I, I, I love it. I think it's a really useful tool, certainly for, I think one of the challenges for a lot of people in judo is they don't have access to an S&C coach, you know, um, a lot of people got access to a gym, but they don't have access to any like advice beyond Instagram, like you say, or TikTok. Um, yeah. When, when you opening your TikTok channel, oh, that's what, that's what I want next. There's no more books, but I want a TikTok um, channel. I'll do it. I'll do it after this. That'll be... <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you can have a TikTok if you're like over 30. <laughs> um, but no, I think it is, it's really accessible. Um, it's yeah, well written. Um, I like as well that you talk a little bit about how lots of people define different terms differently within the same sport so I think the, the example you used right at the start of the book is power you talk about how everybody has a different concept of what power is and then you go on to to to, to define it um why was that important to yeah why was that important to start um, defining some of I these think things the, yeah I think it's important because I, I come unstuck with it in my experience when when different people, when I was working with different coaches, because bear in mind, when I worked at Judo Scotland, I worked with four or five different coaches who were all in the same venue and had come through a similar type of program. So we had shared terminology. I then went down to work in England with different coaches who, some of whom had never worked together before. So they all had their own different terminology. Um, I remember one of the coaches I worked with kept using, kept talking about range, like, oh, this athlete needs more range. And uh, I thought, oh, like they mean range of movement and they meant like repertoire of different judo techniques. Um, and so we did it. And then another coach I worked with, um, really good coach, he used power a lot, but uh, it was more, they want that for explosive repeated efforts. They would speak about, oh, we want to do power training. I've, and then you'd see the schedule for that athlete and have like power here. And I would be saying, you, you would maybe want to put power stuff here and then they'd be like oh they'll get too fatigued from it and i'd be like no pre-competition you want to be putting power stuff there but it was actually because they were thinking of it as explosive repeated efforts and that's why they were wanting it for like further out as, as part of a session because they would maybe go oh, i'm going to do power in this judo session and i'm going to do these i'm going to do it set up like this i'm going to do like 30 on 30 off and i'd be saying that's that's not power like power is this um and sometimes I don't think the actual words are important. So like, I'm not this sort of stuffy old S&C guy that's like, you've got to use the right terminology. Not like that at all. But I think a lot of the time miscommunication is what causes problems or you, you people go in diverging routes because they're just not defined what it is that they actually, what they actually want. So I thought at the beginning of the book, I would just state, here's the terminologies that I'm going to use I tried to drill down a little bit so people could understand there was complexity in it. So a lot of the time when people speak about power, they really do mean like rate of force development. And then within rate of force development, you actually have like fast and slow rate of force development or long and short. Um, and then within the me me mechanisms that are used to develop that rate of force development, you have two different types as well. But that's not what's important for your everyday person is to recognize that when we're talking about power, we mean these kind of things, but we definitely don't mean these sort of things. 
Um, same with mobility and flexibility, that there is a distinct difference between them. Um, and if you do go and work with a personal trainer and you say, I need more flexibility, you possibly don't actually need more flexibility. It's probably mobility that you need. So then the training types would differ for that. So that was kind of my thing. It's just, let's get everybody on the same page. You, you say you say that. Um, but I think the language, particularly in our sport, is so important. You know, we're in a sport where people will argue the differences between an Ashigaruma and a Haragoshi, and nobody knows, nobody cares either. But people will fight you to the death, and then <laughs> yeah. that's that's literally just one level. That's the language of the sport. And then as soon as you step away from the mat, you've everybody means something different. Having this, yeah. Been, I, I I quite enjoyed that you were quite explicit about this is what I mean by this and it helped uh, certainly yeah. my understanding. Um, not going to lie, I've not read the whole of the book yet, but you know I've approached parts of it. I don't think I've read it all actually. I think I was half asleep in a row of it. So, um, Al, where where can people access it? Where can people if they want to learn a little bit more about it, um, they want to learn a little bit more about S and C, how it applies to judo. Where can people access the book or? Um, the best place is if you've got Twitter um, there's a link in my bio on Twitter which I think my handle is at Mr. A. McDonald so that's the main place I also do have an Instagram page which I never really used but it's all just it was, it's just used for the book actually because I realised that people um, would buy through pictures of you with your top off Basically, well, not anymore, not anymore. You wouldn't fit them on the screen. But uh, I'm not 100% sure what my Instagram is. So maybe you can put it in the link to the podcast because I don't even have Instagram on my phone. So uh, I think it's, it might be at Alan McDonald, maybe 1985. It'll be something like that. Um, you're, talking um, of, you're talking of Twitter. I can't let you talk about Twitter and not comment on the fact that you're clearly well into Bitcoin and... Uh invest in that way as well oh yeah i think um so we've spoken before but i don't actually work in sport anymore i am um, work in government and uh i work actually in uh, the scottish tax collection agency and not that that has really anything to do with bitcoin or things but i do find it a um a very interesting tool um for rechanging the way a monetary system works so uh, and I think Bitcoin has got massive, massive potential. Um, and if anybody wants to buy some, it's on sale at the moment. So um, <laughs> I, think, I think I think when Bitcoin is just a store of value, the same way that gold is a store of value. But if you were to compare gold and Bitcoin, um, it's difficult to cut gold up into really small little bits and then transport it. But you can do that with Bitcoin. You don't need to physically transport it. You don't need to protect it. You need to put your gold in a fort. So it costs military. It costs all these other things. So I think when you compare the two of them, it's um, probably a more effective store of value. So we'll see how it goes in the next couple of years. So for all your S&C and cryptocurrency needs, find uh, <laughs> Mr. A. McDonald on Twitter. Um, Al, it's been absolutely superb having you on and thanks for sticking with my massively disjointed way of, oh, oh, this is suddenly cropped up. And this, I'd find this interesting. I really appreciate having you on. It's been great just to catch up again. It's been really good. Yeah, um, no, I've enjoyed it. So thanks for having me on. No, all the best. <laughs> Guys, if you've enjoyed the show, um, yeah, please check us out. Like, subscribe, go find Al on Twitter. Um, encourage him to get back on Instagram by helping him get a massive influx of followers. And um, yeah, we'll catch you soon. Cheers, thank you.